We're going to talk tonight about our Baptist principles. We might say it, we could, we could title it all sorts of things, but the idea is that we are Baptist for a reason. Uh, now, there's, there, this is really a great crowd. There's bound to be somebody here tonight who's not a Baptist. And, and let me make sure you understand that we do not think that we're the only Christians. We do not think that we're the only people who love the Lord. And we would certainly not want you to think that this was a hit piece or anything of that nature. That's not the case at all. But it is Grace Baptist Church. And uh, we are editors of the Ancient Baptist Journal. We spend a lot of our time traveling around uh, the country speaking on Baptist issues, uh, Baptist history, Baptist doctrine. And so there's a reason why we are Baptists. And it has to do with what the Scripture teaches and what we believe the Scripture teaches about the New Testament church. Those things make us Baptists. In other words, we didn't just draw the name out of a hat. We're not Baptists because our family is Baptist and it's, a, it's, it's not a family tradition. Um, so we're, we're going to look at what happens when these principles are neglected. Um, we're going to talk about the specific priority business of the New Testament church. And when these things are compromised, it leads to some, uh, some unfortunate things. It leads eventually to apostasy. And uh, so that's what we're going to talk about, Baptist principles, and, the, and uh, we might call it this, sadly swayed, a look at our principles and the perils that we face upon their neglect. All right? And Mark chapter 16 I have a friend who says that if a rooster won't crow in his own hen house, then wring his neck and make soup out of him. And so this is a Baptist church. I am a Baptist preacher. You shouldn't be remotely upset with me defending what we believe here. And if you disagree with them, I would encourage you to disagree with them if you can. And I mean that not in a sarcastic way. But uh, search the Scriptures and uh, let God be true and every man a liar. Amen. And uh, the psalmist David said, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Um, the Bible says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. All right, so, so I'll just challenge it. All right, uh, Luke chapter 16. Let me read you a quote before we jump into the Scripture. And, uh, no, Mark 16. <laughs> I'm preaching through Luke at home on Sunday mornings, and it just happens to be here staring at me at the top of my page. I'm sorry. Um, let me read you a quote. Jack Hode, an English Baptist historian, wrote a, a wonderful book on Baptist history. Your pastor has uh, knows uh, Mr. Hode and has uh, conversed with him personally. And uh, Jack Hode said this, The Baptist heritage... You have to excuse me. I'm going to have to get, deal with this itch. So I may do this all night. Ready? All right. <laughs> the Baptist heritage is an immensely rich record of the grace of God in preserving a biblical church witness throughout the centuries of the Christian era. In repeated upsurges of a revived testimony to the rugged simplicity of New Testament principles, the Lord of the churches has proclaimed against the heretical departures of those claiming to be mainline Christianity. This heritage is a treasure which Baptists ought not to esteem lightly, but which they are in danger of losing outright in these critical times. With today's ecumenical movement gaining progressive momentum towards the evolution of a world church, it is already apparent that the objective is far more than a unification of Christian churches. That is but the near focus Beyond lies an enormous syncretistic corpus in which all religions of all nations will be coordinate into one world body. Now that's a big fancy way of saying, in the end, the Antichrist is trying, his system involves getting everybody together in a, in a sense of a false charity, a false compromising unity. Amen. Let's get everybody together. The Coca-Cola ministry. I like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. Sounds nice. 
But when you're setting aside very important doctrines, very important key teaching in order to get along, then you're getting along about things and concerning things that are not that important. There's, an old, there's a saying, if the world loves your Jesus, then you've made him something that he is not. And so just like the world is trying to make Jesus someone that he's not, they're also trying to make Bibles that are not Bibles. They're trying to make churches into something other than churches. As a matter of fact, it's very common for people to uh, want to distance themselves from the term church. They'd rather call it a ministry or a, a center or a something, you know, a great Vine Potter's House Christian discotheque or whatever. Uh, weird stuff. So, uh, I, I want us to look at the Scripture and see in very simple terms what the church should be giving itself to. As a pastor, people cut all... I had a guy come to my door... Was, he lived down the street from the church and he'd knock on our door at, at crazy hours. I think he came to our door one time at 1.30. We had just finished lunch at 1.30 a.m. <laughs> and uh, at crazy times, he's really kind of a strange character. And he came to the door one evening. I just sat down to eat dinner. All right, it's another time. Just sat down to eat dinner and he comes, knocks on the door and I go to the door and I see there he is. So I'm thinking, what does he want now? And so then I put on my pastor face and said, hey, how's it going? He said, can you give me a ride down to Winn-Dixie? And I just had reached the end of my otherwise stellar patience. And I said, man, I'm eating. What? Seriously? He said, I thought you was a Christian. I said, well, I am, but I'm not a taxi driver. <laughs> then I instantly felt guilty. I said, okay, Mitch, if you'll just wait, just wait right out there. I wouldn't let him in the house because he's nuts. I mean, he, he was carrying an axe and a chainsaw. I don't know why. <laughs> I said, if you just sit down over there, I, I'll take you to the grocery store. Let me choke down my hamburger helper. Lisa had really cooked well that night, and I, I wanted to... <laughs> I wanted to enjoy my dinner. I came on one night. Lisa said, honey, can you take out the trash? I said, Lisa, you cooked it. You take it out. Anyway, just kidding. <laughs> All right. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I knew you'd like that. <laughs> oh, it's not supposed to be that, feel that good to say that. But anyway, all right. Mark chapter 16. And verse 15. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the God. What's that? That's where we get groceries. You think I leave something out? Oh, yeah, he just wanted to ride to the grocery store. He didn't have a car. He was just, you know. Y'all got that? Me and Brother Jim are talking. <laughs> Be quiet. The adults are talking. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, <laughs> all right, I think we're in Mark, and we're in chapter 16, in verse 15. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Now don't be afraid of that verse. It's like saying, he that getteth on the bus and sitteth down, getteth to town. <laughs> right? The obvious assumption that if a person is genuinely born again, they're going to get baptized. That's what saved people do. I don't know of an example anywhere in the book of Acts of somebody getting saved who did not also get baptized. This modern idea of being able to have it your way, get saved, but you don't get baptized for some weird reason, like somebody might look at you, all that, all that hang-up stuff that has become so central in today's culture. You don't find that in the book of Acts. I'm not trying to be hateful, but if Christ died for your sins and saved you from hell and you can't get dunked in some water, maybe you need to rethink your conversion. So water doesn't save you, but it tells people that you are. And it's very important. And so... Don't worry about this verse. This is a good verse. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. 
In my name shall they cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them, they shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. All right? Don't be afraid of those two verses. You've got to rightly divide the Word of God. The Bible says clearly that Jews require a sign. That's right. It says that very clearly. Sign gifts are for the Jewish church. When the foundation of that Jewish church is being laid in the first, oh, um, eight or nine chapters, seven, six, seven, eight, nine chapters of the book of Acts, depends on how you look at it. All right, during that time of that Jewish church, sign gifts were used prolifically. Lots of miracles to authenticate and confirm the message that was being preached so that Jews would believe this message that suggested that they should be a part of the same body as Gentiles had to confirm that message. Jews require a sign. The further we get into the history of the New Testament church, as recorded in the, in the Scripture, the less miracles we encounter. Right? All right, we find Paul leaving uh, Trophimus and Miletus sick. We find the Apostle Paul himself praying thrice for a thorn in the flesh to be removed, and the Lord said no three times. Following? So... Keep that in mind. Signs follow preaching to the Jewish church. Now, I'm not trying to make... It's still the same church, but it is largely Jewish in nature because when the, when the church was established originally, when, all right? And, and on the day of Pentecost, when the church begins to grow and is empowered by the Lord to do His work, the, all the people gathered there are Jews from every nation under heaven. So Jews require a sign. And so that's the idea. So we don't have to worry about that. Say, so where are those signs now? Where be all his miracles? Well, they left with the apostles. The Bible calls them signs of the apostles. All right? So now teaching is to be associated with preaching. Whereas in the laying the foundation of the church for the Jew, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, during that time of laying the foundation for the Jew, sign gifts were prevalent. They were associated with, they came along with preaching. Today, Greeks seek after wisdom, all right? Preaching and teaching is the order of the day. That's what we do. That's why the Bible says, The same commit thou to faithful men who should be able to teach others also. The, the office that leads the body of Christ today is called pastors and teachers. Okay, so that's what we do here. We preach and teach the Word of God. So, all right, so that's the idea. And then verse 19, So then after... The Lord had spoken unto them. He was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere. The Lord working with them. And this says what we have been saying. Confirming the word with signs following. Amen. Amen. All right. So let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. And the opportunity to be here is great. Lord, I, I pray that this church would know that we do indeed believe it to be a privilege to be here. And we don't take it for granted. And uh, we are humbled by this opportunity and by this experience. And we love our friends. We love the fellowship that we have together. Thank you so much for it, Lord. And may someone be encouraged in the faith tonight. And Lord, I pray that you will protect me, that you will keep me from unnecessary or extreme sharpness. Pray that I would be as sarcastic as necessary to communicate truth in a way that would bring you glory and help others and no more. Keep us from error, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, you know that um, uh, your pastor and I love books. The only difference is I read mine. <laughs> he collects his. Well, we... <laughs> We were in New York City together. Buddy was with us that day. And uh, Buddy almost committed suicide that day, but he made it through. We mapped out like 10, I think it was 10 um, used bookstores in Manhattan. Buddy's eyes just glazed over when he heard that. <laughs> so so we, uh, we, we laid it out and we started out early that morning. We ate breakfast and got after it. One bookstore after another after another all the way through Manhattan. We could not have been happier I guarantee you there was no nine-year-old at Disney World happier that day than me and Brother Jim. I mean, we were having a hoot. Kelsey describes us as, she says, we will eat, leave uh, the restaurant, walk down the block, and stop for coffee and a donut. 
And then we will walk from there and stop and get more coffee and some other kind of donut. And then we'll go down and have lunch. And that's pretty much what we did with a few bookstores jammed in between. Well, we came to a place in New York City. It's called uh, oh, a Washington Square Park. If you watch any television, you've probably uh, seen that uh, famous statue. There's some kind of a looks like a, an, uh, an arch. There we go. That's the big word. Yeah, and I'm a famous park there, and um, I was just excited to be there. All these places you see on television, and here we are in New York, I'm just elated. And we walked upon this stately building, uh, looked like a church, and right on the side, I, I had to do one of these to see if my eyes were deceiving me, there's this plaque on the side of this church that said Judson Memorial Church. And uh, we got a little closer, read the details in this building. This church was a, a church commemorating the life and sacrifice of the great missionary Adoniram Judson, who was the first American foreign missionary who sailed to Burma in 1812. So we were very excited, excited to see that. And, and I think uh, Pastor Alter went inside and stole a couple of books. Uh, and, and that talked about the history of the church and, and a little bit about Judson. And um, so we later, I got thinking about that church. I thought, well, I, I want to look into that, see what they're about. And so I went on their website, and I thought you might like to hear about this Baptist church in New York City and what their mission statement is. It says, you found a church that's a little bit different. It looks like a high Italian Renaissance church for a reason you might not expect from low church Baptist. I have no idea what that means. We're deeply rooted in free church, Baptist, and UCC traditions. But every kind of believer, and not so much a believer, gathers together on Sunday mornings. And hang on. We've been gay proud long before gay pride. That's, on their, that's their church mission statement. We're interested in changing the plight of the marginalized and noticing when the emperors have no clothes. We think the arts make life worth living and celebrate the secular and sacred in all that we do, including worship and how we use our glorious spaces. Really? What did we just read that has anything to do with arts and high church and low church and gay pride? Nothing. Not one thing. And I try to mind my own business. Everybody knows that about me. But I, I, I thought I would email the pastor of this Baptist church whose name is Donna Shaper. She's famous for lobbying for gay marriage and adoption rights for sodomites and so forth. And so I wrote her this email and it said, Ms. Shaper, I have considered writing you for some time. Now, we're doing this for a reason. I like to talk about myself, but we're doing this for a reason. I've considered writing you for some time. I was first introduced to the Judson Memorial Church while hitting the various used book dealers in Manhattan with my son and a friend. We were walking along, meandering toward the Washington Square Park, when, lo and behold, there stood looming above us an architecturally distinct church named in honor of the luminary Adoniram Judson. I was thrilled. I pastored the Liberty Baptist Church of Callahan, Florida, and co-edit the Ancient Baptist Journal, and work as an advisory board member of the Baptist History Preservation Society. That sounds impressive. It's not impressive, but it sounds impressive, and that's what I was trying to do. In my opinion, history knows no greater man than Mr. Judson, who buried two wives and numerous children for the gospel's sake. When I returned home, I thought to check out the Judson Memorial Church website. Now, as an old-fashioned Bible-believing Baptist of the historic variety, parentheses, you know, fire, brimstone, repentance, a converted church membership, etc., you might imagine that I was more than a little rattled by what I encountered. Now, I am by no means sheltered or ignorant. I'm educated and well-traveled, but I really, don't believe that, I really didn't believe that anything existed quite like your um, church. Now, Ms. Shaper, I promise you, it is not my intention to insult you. What you do and believe is your business, and you will never have to answer to the likes of me. The part that I question is this. Number one, you, obviously a woman, are the pastor of a... Baptist Church. Are y'all doing okay? You understand something about that's not right. Do you understand that? Okay. Number two, your website celebrates that you call gay pride 
you're, you celebrate what you call gay pride. And I put in parentheses the sodomite lifestyle that is clearly, clearly denounced in Scripture. And it is, by the way. It is. You have to completely twist the Scripture. You have to rip it out of its context to support such a thing. Number three, you hosted a function that advertised various hijinks, including beer and nudity at the Baptist church. You are actively involved in this harm reduction program, which smacks of accommodation to me, but harm reduction. One of the ministries of their church is they give clean needles to drug addicts. With all of these goings on, why don't you kindly remove the name Baptist? Even the word church would be, a nice, would be nicely discarded. But you certainly wouldn't be the first to use it out of its biblical context. The least you could do would be to consider letting us keep our name from being sullied by what our consciences and convictions would tell us is unadulterated perversity. I do not mean this as, as, as incendiary as it sounds, nor do I wish to berate you. And I, as a foul Falwellian, that's what she calls our type people, so we follow after Jerry Falwell. She doesn't understand that we're so far right of Falwell you couldn't even see our taillights. I, I, as a foul fall, and I love Brother Falwell, but that's just the way it is. I wish to berate you, and as I, as a foul Falwellian, as you put it, certainly do not hate you. As I said, you have a right to your own beliefs, however contrary to the clear teachings of Scripture they may be. But you could at least use denominational nomenclature that is consistent with your faith and practice, no? In conclusion, I shudder to think of how Judson would feel to see his name memorialized by what your institution has come to represent. Well, that was a waste of time. She responded, Dear Pastor Dalton, thank you for writing. We clearly disagree about the meaning of being a Baptist. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> I understand that conscience and freedom of belief is a large part of its meaning. Do you understand the freedom of conscience does not mean that you can decide what right and wrong is? It means that you have the freedom to find what is right and believe that. That's different. She says, I can't imagine our choosing to eliminate Baptists from our name based on your theological interpretation of its meaning. And then she passed it on to somebody else. And, and then they, here's what she, she received this email. Thanks for sharing this, Donna. Do you get any, many such emails? He is probably Southern Baptist. <laughs> I trust you know they don't condone the ordination of women and routinely cast out churches which ordain women. They seem to know better than the Spirit of God what is right. Whatever. All right, enough of that. <laughs> enough of that waste of time. Does, does it matter what we believe? Yes, it does matter what we believe. And this is an extreme case that I'm really only reading to you to celebrate the absurdity of it. The chances of this church getting that messed up, however, would only take a handful of compromises and time. That's all it would take. And you would be surprised how rapidly those changes could take place. So what I want us to look at, and we're going to jump into it now, is what's important to a New Testament church. And then we're going to look at them in, in the context of what happens when you adjust them, when you compromise them. When you give ground in those areas. That's what we're going to do. We're going to try to move fast. All right? Tomorrow, let me say this. Tomorrow night, I hope that, to talk about Adoniram Judson. I hope to preach to you a biographical sermon, which I think, if the Lord would allow me to say it well, and that, that's, that's a, a real, uh, that's like playing the lottery, but if the Lord will help me to say it well, you could really, really get a... a, 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 a a, th a thrill, if that's the right word. You'll really be moved to the Lord just by the facts of the story. And you ought to bring somebody with you and let them hear this amazing story. Tonight is not going to be as inspirational as hopefully it will be an us together rejoicing in and, 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 and uh, strengthen our, strengthening ourselves in the principles that are dear to us. All right? So think about it. As we talk about this, do I believe this? And if I believe this... Is it important to me? If you don't believe it, I want to encourage you to ask yourself, why don't I believe this? Sounds right to me. Why haven't I been told this? 
What changes should I make in my faith and my worship in order to line up with the Scripture? Maybe you would just flatly disagree with it, and that, of course, would be between you and the Lord. And if you really don't like it, Brother Jim will be happy to make an appointment with you and deal with it (laughs) after I'm gone. Amen. Here we go. What is the first thing that a New Testament church should commit itself to in in its practice? Well, this says to go and do what to every creature? Preach the gospel to every creature. Go and preach the gospel to every creature. So preaching becomes the first thing. All right, if we had a big chalkboard here, we would write at the top of that chalkboard, right over to the left, we'd write the word preaching. That's the first thing that we have to do. We have to give ourselves to preaching. Now, the Bible says that God chose the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Now, let's get that... Hold your place there and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's get that, that nail driven as deeply as we can drive it. All right? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. When a preacher stands up and says preaching is important and giving yourself to something other than preaching as a church is a waste of time, it sort of smacks of self-interest. But we've got to look at the Scripture and see what the Scripture says about preaching. Okay? All right? 1 Corinthians... By the way, let me say this. What your pastor and I have given ourselves to is not easy. We do not do it because it's fun to lose friends. We don't do it because it's, it's great to go around and stick our thumb in everybody's eye. We don't do it because it's lucrative. We do it because we believe that the only answer to apostasy is rightly ordered and structured New Testament churches. That's it. And we've got to keep that right. Somebody has to talk about more than how to balance the checkbook, how to manage your finances, how to get along with your spouse, how to have a happy home, how to have a better self-image, how to just enjoy your life and just wee all the time. Somebody has to talk about doctrine. And when those things come up in there, great, talk about them and move on. There's about three chapters in the Bible that talk about the home, and some churches dedicate two-thirds of their ministry to talk about the home. You don't have to have a good home. Just be a Christian. Be a good Christian. That'll help a lot. That'll eliminate a lot of marital problems. When my wife acts like a good Christian, we get along a lot better. All right? But the Scripture emphasizes doctrine, and doctrine has to be preached. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 of verse 17, Paul said, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That's the reason that Paul existed on this earth, was to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to preach it. Not, Not act it out in a play, not sing it in a song, but to preach it. There's no replacement for Bible preaching in the work of God. I'm not against singing. We've done some of it. But i got to tell you, after about two and a half songs, I'm done. Even when I'm hearing my kids and I know I'm about to preach, I'm ready to sit those little guys down and get to preaching. It's about preaching. do not have to be me doing it. Get some old-fashioned preacher that believes the Bible, loves God, and let him get up here and preach himself into a lather. And I'm happy with that. That's what God uses. But let's look at what it says. This is one of your pastor's favorite verses. And his using it has influenced my thinking. Look at verse 10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that y'all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now I used to read that, and that gave me a lot of trouble. Because I would think about my church, and I'd think, man, we're 100 miles apart. I've got people in my church who think it's fun. Their idea of entertainment is let's put some dogs in a truck and go out in the woods at midnight and let's catch wild hogs. Not shoot wild hogs, catch wild hogs. Well, I'm out. All right, at midnight, I'm not a sissy or a wallflower, but at midnight I want to be in my chair with a bowl of popcorn about the size of a wash tub and I want to be watching some sports center or something. I don't We're different in that regard, very different. I like cities. Now, I have a countryside, but I also like cities. I love New York and Chicago and Boston and Memphis and Pine Bluff and places like that. I, I like cities. Man, I don't know if I got, I don't know if there's anybody in my church that likes cities. 
Their idea of a city is just something to drive through and get out. Sometimes I don't know if we have anything in common. Until I read the rest of this passage and see what it is that we're supposed to have unity about. He goes on in verse 11, For it hath been declared unto me of you. By the way, I'm a rabid, irrational, irrational, crazy Alabama football fan. I admit it. I'm not rational at all about it. Don't plan to be. And I pastor in Florida. I got Gator fans in the church, and boy, have we humbled them. And they do not like me for that. I've almost lost my job over that. (laughs) We do not speak the same things in that regard. We don't don't even talk about it. It does not come up. (laughs) What's good with this about? For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius. Lest any should say that I have baptized in mine own name, and I baptized also the household of Stephanus. So notice Paul was not saying that baptized wasn't, baptism wasn't important. It's not what he was sent to do. It wasn't his primary work. Besides, I know not whether I baptize any other. And he continues on. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. And then on he goes talking about the importance of the preaching of the cross. Now I say all that to say, we can disagree on a lot of things. We can have a different view, a different opinion, different impressions about lots of things. But we have got to have unity about Christ and the gospel. And the preaching of that gospel has to be the primary work and the primary concern of the New Testament church. Missionaries are supposed to be gospel preachers. Our work is about the gospel, about preaching Christ to dying men. It's not about feeding the hungry or clothing the naked or habitat for humanity. It's about the gospel. As Pastor Alter says all the time, look, some of those social works that religious organizations give themselves to, all it's doing is making the world a better place to go to hell from. Now, I would be the last person to stand in front of a hungry child getting something to eat. But if all you do is feed him and you do not give him Christ, have you helped him? No. Preaching. Preaching. Right at the top of the board. Preaching. We could say this about preaching. We could say that preaching is the primary responsibility of the church. Now what is preaching? Let's suppose we just took out our our Bible and we were going to go through the Bible and see if we could construct an idea of what it means to preach. You know, sometimes you think you know what something means. But you get into it and you take it apart and unpack the ideology of it and you'll find that the meaning may be a little richer than previously believed. So what about that word preaching? If we were to go through the Bible and look at the word preaching, all right? And I mean uh, P-R-E-A-C-H-I-N-G, okay? That form of it. No, 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 I think I used the word preach, sorry. If we look at the word preach, the first time the word preach shows up in the Bible is in Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 7. Let me read to you what it says, okay? It says, And thou hast also appointed prophets to preach of thee at Jerusalem, comma, saying. The first time the word shows up, obviously, preaching involves something said. Amen. Now, that's deep, isn't it? But it's important because there are a lot of things that are replacing preaching that aren't saying anything. For some reason, God has chosen to use the spoken word to work in people's hearts. Amen. All right, that's, that's very important. So preaching involves something that we say. We may say it loud, quiet, monotone, passionately, but if it's truth, it needs to be said. All right? And by the way, God's used a lot of different kind of preachers. Amen. 
God has used very educated preachers. He's used preachers that could barely stumble their way through a King James text. But they worked hard at it. And they preached their heart. And they shared the truth. And God used it. God will use a lot of different kinds of preaching. When it is indeed preaching. And we're going to get there. Second time preaching comes up in the Bible. Isaiah 61.1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach. The Lord's anointed me to preach. Well, the second impression I get is that, is that preaching requires the help of God, Amen. the touch of God, the anointing of God. And the Bible says that every believer is anointed with the Spirit of God. Every believer has that anointing. Right? That's what the Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, that we need not that any man teach us because we are anointed. We ha- You've heard people pray for the unction, pray for an anointing. Lord, anoint this. Lord, anoint me as I preach. I, I'm, they're asking for something they already have if they're saved. Yes, sir. That's true. So it requires the help of God. Meaning a, a lost man can't preach. Not really. Amen. Okay? So, preaching involves something said. Preaching involves the help of God. Now, the third time that we find the word preach in the Bible is in Jonah chapter 3 and verse 2. And we find this. Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So, preaching involves things said. Preaching requires the help of God. And real preaching is when we say what God would have us to say. I used to look, and I still struggle with it. I still struggle sometimes with looking at a sermon, looking at the outline, looking at what is prepared to preach, and there's not enough stories in there and jokey jokes and little things to keep people's attention. And so I feel like I don't know what to do with it. Because old habits die hard. And I've had to try to coach myself through the years that I'm not here for people to see me. I'm here for them to see and hear and experience the words of the living God. That's where the power's at. It's in the Word of God. So preaching is the primary responsibility of the church. You might be thinking, you know, Pastor, I appreciate that. That's, it's, it's out of date. Really? Paul told Timothy, preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when men shall not endure sound doctrine. The idea is when we reach a place in culture where people will no longer stand preaching, our response to that should be, keep preaching. Amen. We don't change that one iota to get more people. And you're going to see why that's important here in just a minute. And and, and let me say this. I don't mean that condescending. You already know it. We're going to talk about it together. Okay? So preaching. Go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now what does the next verse say? What are the first few words? He that believeth. Okay, there's the second thing. Back to the chalkboard. Preaching, under preaching, right? Faith. Preaching is supposed to produce faith. The Bible says without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith is, 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 the, it is the commodity of the New Testament church. It is what we are trying to produce in people. And it is produced through preaching His Word. The Bible says faith cometh by hearing. And look, I'm getting ahead of myself there. Uh, I tell you, go over to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. If preaching is the primary duty, faith is the predictable result. If we preach the Word of God and we preach it faithfully, it will produce faith. If we are getting responses in ministry without preaching the Word, then what we are getting is probably not faith. Does that make sense? It may look like faith. Just because somebody walks an aisle some kind of a religious get-together doesn't mean that Things are happening that need to be happening. When I, when I see one of these Christian rock concerts, everybody's eyes are rolled back in their head, and people are responding. I'm not saying nobody gets saved there. But I'm saying I'm not confident in what's going on there like I am when the Word of God is being preached. You understand that? I don't think it's unfair to make that contrast. There's a difference between strobe light ministry, you know, jam for the lamb 
Well, I got a buddy that like me as jam for the land ministry, and all of that. There's a difference between that and what happens when the word of God is preached. There's a difference. All right. Okay. Romans chapter 10, we love this verse. I love verse 17. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Isn't that a blessing? Let's back up. Verse 33 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what we're looking for. Verse 14 says, How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not, what? Believed. And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a what? Verse 17, so then faith cometh by what? See that? If we want to see people saved, if we want people to come to that place of um, saving faith, preaching is necessary. It's necessary. It involves what is spoken what is said to people. And when that is done, God's Word begins to work in their hearts, begins to work in their lives, and it will bring them to a place of conviction and conversion. It's vital. There is no replacement for preaching. Preaching is first. Faith is second. Preaching is the primary duty of the New Testament church, while faith is the predictable result when we give ourselves to that duty. Okay? Let's go back to our text. Go ye therefore in all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. We got preaching. He that believeth, and we got faith, and is what? Baptized. Okay, so we got to write baptism up there. I'm not making anything up so far, right? It's right out of the Bible. It, 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 there's, there's preaching, and then there's faith, and then there's baptism. Baptism follows and demonstrates faith. There's a lot to be said about baptism, okay? Your pastor can tell you all sorts of things about that. Matter of fact, he's written a great uh, little booklet on the subject, and uh, it would be a real help to you. But let's uh, let's read this uh, quote about baptism, okay? J.R. Graves said this. He said, Christian baptism is not the celebration of a religious rite by modes indifferent, but a specific act to be administered by a specific body to persons of specific qualifications. Now hold it. We understand that baptism involves dunking someone in water. But, but can the mailman do that? I mean, he could dunk you in water, but does that make it baptism? Does the post office baptize? I'm not being a smart aleck. Just because somebody's dunked in water doesn't make them baptized. All right? It requires the proper body to administer the act. When one of these properties is wanting, the transaction is null and void. Since, unless the ordinances are observed as Christ commanded, they are not kept, but preserved, I mean, but perverted. And bring upon the parties, not the commendation, but the condemnation of the master. You find me one example of an infant being sprinkled in that Bible, and I will eat a songbook. There's the sarcasm I asked the Lord to help me not to go too far with. It's not in the Bible. Well, it doesn't say you can't do it. Well, you don't get to just make stuff up. Jesus said, you're my friends. If you do whatsoever, I've commanded you. He's told us what the New Testament church is supposed to do, what the New Testament church is supposed to be committed to, and He's given us very specific guidelines concerning how it's supposed to be done. Now, what we're going to get to in a minute is why that matters. It is amazing to me that people like us who are regular, ordinary people who can't hardly get through one week of living without a fight with our wife, we somehow think we know better than God about baptism. Don't you think that's interesting? I want to sit around these conversations. Well, it was a beautiful ceremony. It was a wonderful... What does that have to do with anything? Nothing. Just because it's cute. Anything you do with a baby is beautiful. Everything you do with those little fat, cheap jokers is great. But God did not say baptize that infant and give them some kind of a religious sponsor, some kind of a godparent. That's all superstitious. Amen. It's not in the Bible. Yes, sir. Baptism 
is an act that is performed by the local church on those who have responded to preaching in faith. It is the door into the New Testament church. It places them in the local body. It identifies themselves with the doctrine preached and taught by that body. And it is a disciplinary ordinance that separates them from the world around them. That's why a church is called a called out assembly. The church is an assembly of baptized believers. That brings me to another quote. This is a good one. You ready? Jeremiah Jeter said the difference between pedo-baptist and Baptist touching baptism is to a great extent the difference between ritualism and obedience. Those observing a rite, not concerning themselves to observe the rite, ritualize. Those who observe the rite, because the rite, R-I-T-E, is commanded, they obey. Pedo-baptists perform a rite. Baptists obey the ordinance. Baptists simply apply the baptism, apply to baptism, their constitutive principle of obedience. So it matters. If preaching is the primary duty, faith is the predictable result, and baptism is the professor's response. Says something about what he believes and who he is. So, if we have... Preaching and then faith and then baptism. Now we've got a group of people, however big or small, doesn't matter. We have a group of people who are baptized now. They are baptized believers. What do we have the material for now? A church. Not until then. So what follows preaching on the chalkboard? You have preaching, faith, baptism, churches. All right? Look at um, Acts chapter 2. If preaching is the primary duty and faith is a predictable result and baptism the professor's response, churches are the principal representation of Christ on the earth in this age. Amen. That's why it's called Christ's body. All right? Now... Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Then they that gladly received His word. There you have preaching and faith right there. See that? Then they that gladly received His word were baptized. And the same day they were added unto them. There's the church. You say, now how can you have a church? How can you have baptism without a church? No, that's not what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting that when you have a group of baptized believers, you have the material for a church. That's what makes up a church. So, the 120 in the upper room were there. That's the church. 3,000 are saved on the day of Pentecost, responding to the preaching of Peter. Those 3,000 are added to the 120. I hear people say, well, church membership's not in the Bible. If that's not church membership, I don't know what it is. How do you add to a group of people a specific number of people? You add to them. And they continue in the apostles' doctrine. They observe the Lord's ordinances. They continue in singleness of heart and breaking bread and so forth. That's church membership. That's as clear as a bell. So we have churches, the principal representation of the Lord. Why is this so important? What difference does it make if someone wants to join the church and they don't have the same view of how much water you use in an ordinance? It's more than how much water is used or not used. The reason it matters is because scriptural baptism requires a saved church membership, a spiritual church membership. You can't join Grace Baptist Church without the right kind of profession. That doesn't make the people here better. It just makes them spiritual. You see what I mean? In other words, it doesn't mean that we're better people if we're Baptists. Don't, don't, this, is not a, this is not a high-tone sermon. We're simply observing the principles in the Scripture and trying to glean from them the reason for them. Here's what I'm talking about. If you have a church that doesn't require baptism of any kind, just as long as you're sincere about the Lord, you can be a member of that church. You're going to have members of the church that have never been saved. 
You understand the Bible says that a man is born dead in his trespasses and sins and that his heart is desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? And when you put lost people in their lost condition, in the membership of a church, what they want, what they will approve of, what they will encourage, what they will participate in is completely different than what saved people will stand for. The Bible says if, we, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away and all things are become new. How he sees the world is different. How he lives is supposed to be different. So therefore, look, you could take the most backslidden church member of a Baptist church. If he's saved, there are, there's a number of things he would never give consent to. Just because he just couldn't do it. He couldn't give in to certain kinds of heresy. And so when you add to that, a church like this that has a discipleship ministry that is second to nothing I've ever seen and the kind of Bible preaching that goes on here that is, it is amazing. And you hear your preacher every week, so you may get used to that, but let me tell you something. There, he has no peer in our circles. This man is the best preacher I know in the world, all things considered. I don't like him much, but he can preach. So when you put all that stuff together, what you have here is a church with some very mature, very clear thinking, very spiritual, you know what the word we're looking for? Holy people. That's why you're nice. When was the last time you had some kind of crazy rip it in a business meeting? I bet you haven't had it in 20 years. or I bet it hasn't happened under His watch. Why? Because you're spiritual. Decent, spiritual, saved, humble, holy people don't fight in a business meeting over what grade of a door to hang on a fellowship hall. It takes a pervert to do that. Or a prevert, as that great preacher uh, Archie Bunker would say. All right, so that's kind of the idea, man. It matters, makes a difference what kind of church it is. There's not going to be any hijinks with beer and nudity in this church. It's not because he's a dictator. It's because you wouldn't stand for it. And why wouldn't you stand for it? Because you believe this stuff. It's changed you. If Brother Jim got run over by a train, I always said to my church, if I get hit by a freight train, somebody asked me the other day, Pastor, are you planning to leave? I said, no, I'm not planning on getting hit by a train. <laughs> if something happens to Brother Jim, you guys are going to have a hard time finding another pastor. And that's good. That's a good thing. You wouldn't take just any old guy with any old set of beliefs, with just any old approach to preaching, see? All right. Now, all that I'm saying right now, I'm not chasing rabbits. This all goes together. All these things relate to, in some way, what happens when a church is spiritual versus when a church is just a religious organization. All right. On that chalkboard, we have preaching. Preaching is the primary duty. Then we have faith. Faith is a predictable result. Then we have baptism. Baptism is the professor's response. Then we have churches. That's the principal representation of Christ. On this earth, in this age. And then, what do we do in those churches? Well, Acts chapter 2 says, Then they that gladly received His word were baptized. They're adding to them about 3,000 souls. And then it says, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That's my Hulk Hogan. All right? So the fifth thing, the final thing would be teaching. Preaching. Faith, baptism, churches, teaching. Teaching is the practical recourse that the church employs for edifying its believers, edifying its members, building them up, preparing them to live in the world. If preaching is boldly proclaiming the Word of God and demanding a response, teaching is the transfer of knowledge with attention to detail. That's what teaching is. Both of them go together. They're kin together. I hear preachers all the time try to make a big difference between preaching and teaching. They try to make preaching some mystical thing that happens when something weird comes over them. And teaching is something that compromisers do with an overhead projector and colored pencils. The Bible puts the two together. 
A pastor is supposed to be given to preaching and teaching because the most important issue for creating and cultivating faith is understanding. The mind cannot rejoice, or the heart cannot rejoice, and what the mind rejects is false. You gotta see the truth and understand it in order to believe it, and then that changes your life. So teaching is very important. When the Bible says that uh, we should preach the gospel, or that we should preach the word, and be in season, out of season, and so forth, and then that men will not endure sound doctrine. And then it says, but shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. It's not saying that preachers are good things and teachers are not to be trusted. The text is talking about doctrine. Doctrine means teaching. It is God's truth in God's words. If we were to go through the Bible and do one of the little word studies and look at the word doctrine, you would find the word doctrine associated with teaching. Doctrine is things taught. That's what it is. So, those things go together. Preaching and teaching go together. You're supposed to know what you believe, church. The Bible says, you know, earlier we took some shots at, at, at Reverend Mrs. Schaefer. The Bible says the woman is not to preach or to teach or to usurp authority over the man in the church, but to learn in silence with all subjection. That's what the Bible says. And the Bible says if a woman has a question, let her raise her hand and raise cane in a business meeting. Is that what it says? No. It says if a woman has a question, let her ask her husband at home. Now the real issue there is many women today couldn't ask their husband anything at home unless they were talking about NASCAR. Am I right? Ask the husband at home. My mother could ask my dad anything about the Bible. If he didn't know it, he would fake it till he make it. You know what I mean? <laughs> my dad would have found the answer. He would have had an answer. But when we started going to church and my dad submitting his family, his wife, his children to the preaching of this man. My dad loved my preacher. I've never heard my dad say a negative word about my pastor not one time in all my life. But my dad's not a yes man. My dad's not a sycophant. My dad studied the Bible and learned the Bible, learned what the preacher was saying and how it fit in the context. Dad became strong in the faith so dad could answer the questions. UK, you can't just run any old thing by my dad. Or my mom, for that matter. And the idea is that mom and dad have committed themselves to the work of that New Testament church all these many years and grown in the faith. They got the answers. You can't just get anything by them. And that's supposed to be the same thing with you. Let me encourage you. Teaching and doctrine is important. Now, we've said all that. We're almost done. Let's, Let's look at that chalkboard now. We've got preaching. And we've got faith. And we've got baptism. Churches, teaching, those five things. Okay, so in conclusion, a couple of observations, okay? Number one, when bab- and, and we're talking about compromise, and the first thing in that list that people begin to kind of mess with is baptism. So it's a strange thing. We read commentaries, all the, your pastor and I are expository preachers. Well, I sort of am, he is for sure. And so we, we prepare weekly to preach through the Bible. So we read commentaries. And it's amazing how many commentators will low rate the importance of baptism. As if it just doesn't really matter. The fundamentalist. The fundamental, the, 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 the fundamentals, okay? Uh, that is a publication that was compiled back in the early 1900s by a group of, of businessmen that wanted people to be strong in the faith. In those fundamentals, nothing is said about baptism because it is a group of people who have disparate views on baptism. So they have to sort of set baptism out and make no issue out of it. We just read that Jesus has included it in the primary instructions that He gives the New Testament church to continue in until He returns. So baptism's got to be important. All right, number one. When baptism is neglected, the nature of the church is altered. Think of that. If a church is a called out assembly of baptized believers, if that's what a church is, as soon as you tamper with baptism, meaning as soon as you allow people into the membership of the church whose baptism is not scriptural, as soon as you lower that standard, 
you tamper with baptism, you will begin to alter the nature of the church. Before long, you'll have a percentage of people who are members of the church who may not even be saved. They might just be religious. They may be the nicest people in the world and wonderful neighbors, but they've never been born again. All right? That's number one. Number two, when the nature of the church is altered, doctrine is compromised. Okay? We, we, altered, we lowered our baptismal requirements. So now we're allowing people to come into the membership of the church who are not where we are. Oh, I'm sure they're nice people. But they're not where we're at in terms of doctrine. Therefore, we've got to alter. We've got to change our doctrine. We can't make an issue out of baptism anymore. We might have to ease up on what we require about Bible conversion. I've heard people say, when confronted about their, ba- about their salvation, well, I don't remember a time when I didn't believe. Now, that, that's not the kind of faith we're talking about. The Bible says the devils believe and tremble. Amen. We're not talking about giving mental assent to the fact of Jesus. We're talking about a sinner turning to Christ in faith to save him from his sins. Right. You start messing with that, we might as well get a job, as my old buddy used to say, selling fuller brushes door to door and quit messing with all this. All right. Number three, when doctrine is compromised, preaching is diluted. So we've messed with baptism. When you mess with baptism, the next thing on that list, remember, is churches. So now we've altered the nature of the church. Following that is teaching. When you change the nature of the church, you've got to change what you teach in that church. If you have in the membership of the church a percentage of the church that was sprinkled as infants and then a, a percentage of the church that maybe didn't get baptized at all or maybe they got dunked by some cult somewhere and then you've got a percentage of the church that was actually scriptural baptized. That's a mess. And if you get up and teach what the Bible says about baptism on a regular basis, it's going to be a constant turmoil in that church. 99.9% of the preachers take the past the least resistance like water and they'll stop teaching that stuff they'll just back right off of it alright so we're down at the end of our list so we go back up to the top now, now we've messed with baptism that's changed the nature of the church we've compromised the things that we teach and so when you have altered the doctrine of that church the next thing it's going to affect goes right back to the top is preaching so then we begin to preach self help sermons all the time We've got to preach things that will have a, an appeal to people. Right? You're right. Uh, if we can appeal to them, great. But we can't always do that. Interesting thing, if you had time, you ought to, you ought to Google New York Times headlines uh, or, or the area where a section of the New York Times in the late 1800s, early 1900s, where the Baptist churches would announce their sermons. Or all the churches would announce the coming sermon series. And you compare the sermon titles for I am Haldeman, pastor of the First Baptist Church in New York, and the sermon titles of of uh, Stratton down at uh, Calvary Baptist Church uh, in Midtown. Compare their sermon titles to the sermon titles of the guys who had already sold their soul to the devil. It's astounding. Those guys, and I'm talking about in 1900, those guys, those compromisers, everything they talked about was positivity. And, and man, those old Baptists were talking about judgment and heaven and hell and conversion. And, and it was amazing, the difference. Because when you mess with baptism and change the nature of the church and alter and compromise your doctrine, your preaching will change. No pastor wants to get up here and have to fight every week of his life. So he changes his preaching. Faith cometh by hearing. Remember that? As soon as we get so far into this thing that we have changed what and how we preach, faith is going to be jeopardized. Maybe that's why Jesus said, when the Son of Man returns, shall he find faith on the earth. Faith is by and large gone. Evangelical leaders don't believe this book anymore. You're right. It's hard to find Baptists who would defend that book without swerving 
They'll vote on things that should not even be brought up for discussion. That book. Faith is so important. And you can't say you love... All right, I'm almost done. When a preacher... When a preacher tells me, or when we view, when we see, when we witness a preacher changing his message, compromising his preaching to try to appeal to people, he professes to do that because he loves sinners, wants to reach people, right? You know what that's like? That's like these parents that don't discipline their kids and they say they don't spank their kids because they love them too much. No, you don't. You love you too much. Because nobody likes how it feels when they have to discipline their kids. Nobody likes that. I hate that. But it has to be done. And people love themselves too much in today's age to do that. They don't want to be they don't want their kids to be mad at them. They want to be the cool parents. And that's what preachers do. It's hard for preachers to live with the reproach. Amen. It gets a little old to go down to the barbershop and be the weirdo. All the conversation stops when you go in. That was cute when I was twenty five. It's old now. But that's why we're admonished to stand and having done all to stand. Charles Williams wrote in The Principle and Practices of the Baptist in 1879, true religion consists in believing what God has revealed and in observing all that God has commanded. J.M. Cramp said, if you were to place a New Testament in the hands of an intelligent, impartial person, who had never heard of our divisions and denominations, what idea would he be likely to form of the spirit and design of Christianity or of a Christian church? What Cramp is implying, his obvious assertion is that our distinctive faith and practice as Baptists is found in the Word of God and only in the Word of God. We're not trying to make up anything extra. We're just trying to do what it says and to stand by it. And there's a reason for it. J.M. Carroll said the inspired scriptures and they only, in fact, the New Testament and that only, to be the rule and guide of faith and life. And not only for the church as an organization, but for each individual member of that organization. So this is where it's at for the believer. Right here. What is your authority? What does the scripture say? What goes on in a church has to line up with this Bible. There's a lot of things that we can debate over and we can really kind of go back and forth on it. And we can scratch our head on some things. There's some deep water in this book. But what we read tonight, not complicated at all. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Baptize them. When they respond to faith, baptize them. Then continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine as a church, observing the ordinances and being faithful to do that till he returns. When we do that without swerving, we will see the fruit of it in God's timing. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word, what it means to us.